Hello, I'm Sir Pollock and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, how the Pandora Papers expose the financial secrets of the rich and powerful. This week, a trove of millions of leaked documents was published, exposing the secret offshore deals and hidden assets of some of the world's richest and most powerful people. The Pandora Papers reveal the methods used by more than 130 billionaires, along with celebrities and politicians, to hide their money away as part of the global offshore economy. More than 600 journalists around the world, led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, have spent the past two years sifting through these files as part of the largest ever global media investigation. But what exactly are the Pandora Papers and what do they tell us about the lengths that the ultra-wealthy are willing to go to in order to hide their money away? Irish Times legal affairs correspondent Colm Keena is the only Ireland-based journalist to have worked with the ICIJ on this historic global investigation. Colm, can you start by telling us a bit more about this massive leak? What are the Pandora Papers and what can you tell us about where the leak came from? All I can tell you about where they've come from is that, according to the ICIJ, they came from a single anonymous source who passed the the data over to the ICIJ in Washington, D.C., over a period of time. These days, people can download all the information that, if you can imagine, in a a large law firm or whatever, all the files that would exist in a multi-storey building or a number of multi-storey buildings around the world. And imagine somebody downloaded all those files into electronic means and handed them over to the ICIJ and you're ending up with nearly 12 million documents, some of which would be a few pages long and some of which would be longer than that. So it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult to conceive amount of information. It's greater than the Panama Papers leak. And I remember back at the time of the Panama Papers, somebody estimating that if, if there were A4 pages and you piled them one on top of the other, there'd be a number of miles high. And in that mountain of data, the Irish Times has uncovered documents that show how Ireland is being used as a de facto offshore location by people and businesses in Russia, Ukraine, Uzbekistan and other countries in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And they're able to do that by setting up a legal entity called a limited partnership. And the documents show how one office on Lower Fitzwilliam Street in Dublin is home to more than 800 of these limited partnerships. Yeah, there's a there's an empty office there, Office 29. It's a, it's a rented office, but there's nobody in it. And it's rented by a London business, Last International. They um, basically, if you wanted a limited partnership registered here in Ireland, you could ask them to, to register it for you. And they'd, they do the necessary application to the company's registration office here in Dublin. They, they perform a similar service in the UK in relation to English limited liability partnerships and in Scotland in relation to, to limited partnerships there. And you actually visited the building yourself, right? What was it like when you, you arrived at the door? Um, was there anyone there who greeted you? There's service offices. I think there's about 40 service offices there. And you go in, there's a receptionist, you know, acting for everyone, so to speak. And I asked, could I speak to Last International? And she told me that they... they there's nobody in the building. They already have an office there. There's nobody in the building from that company. And she gave me a phone number in, in London and uh, the name of one of the people associated with the building. So there are over 800 of these limited partnerships registered in that office alone that have been identified in the Pandora Papers. What is a limited partnership and 
what's it for? They're an old sort of thing. If the legislation dates back to 1907. You could imagine perhaps somebody had a farm. Somebody could come along and say, I'll invest in your farm to help you modernise it and so on. So the farmer would still be running the farm and the investor would put £500 or £5,000 into the running of the farm. Now, the investor can profit then if the farm makes a profit. But if the farm goes catastrophically wrong, he's only exposed to the extent of his of his investment. What is it about these limited partnerships in Ireland that attracts people from Russia, Ukraine and other places to set them up? They're, they're easy enough to set up. They're not very expensive to set up. They themselves are not taxed. It's the partners are taxed on any profits that flow through the partnership. Now, the distinctive thing about what's happening in relation to Clifton House and a number of other addresses is that what they're doing is they're setting it up so that the partners involved are in fact offshore companies and they're not the real partners. They're what's called nominee or proxy partners. So you end up with an Irish registered entity. So it's a registered entity in an EU member state that has a good reputation. But the partners are offshore in a tax-free jurisdiction and there's no way of finding out who's actually behind those nominees. So who's the real person? Uh, who controls this partnership. So in the, so you end up with something that's very like an offshore company, an offshore shell company. It's not taxed and there's no way of finding out who's really behind it. But you you don't have the downside where you to go to a bank and open a bank account. They'd say, oh, British Virgin Islands company, a company in the Seychelles, don't like to look at this and ask you more questions. Instead, you come up with this address the name of a partnership and an address in Dublin. And people think, well, that's an EU member state, a reputable jurisdiction and so on. So you get all the advantages of the EU and uh, also all the advantages of your classic offshore. And then the limited partnership can open bank accounts. It can conduct uh, trades. It can sign contracts. And um, as I understand it, it can own property too. So, Colm, let's say that you, you're an extremely wealthy person. Why do you want to set up a limited partnership in Ireland? How do you go about doing it? And once it's established, what are you using it for? I can answer some of those questions, but not all of them. So if I was, for instance, in Moscow, and like you say, I had a lot of money, I could go into a lawyer in Moscow and he would set up one of these limited partnerships for me. He would contact an offshore services company, let's say in the Seychelles, then they would contact the company formation service in London and the company formation service in London would set up the, the Irish Limited Partnership for me and it would have nominee, direct, nominee partners from the Seychelles so nobody could see who owned uh, controlled the partnership. Then I would have power of attorney over the partnership and I could open a, a bank account, let's say in Switzerland. I could conduct trades, I could enter into contracts with other companies and other people using this uh, limited partnership. Now, why somebody in Russia want to go to all that trouble and not just say, my name's Colin Keane, I want to open a bank account, is a kind of a complicated question. I mean, sometimes it might be because they got the money in ways that they, they want to hide. But also, people have said to me in the past, some people in Russia got rich very, very quickly following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they have a distrust of holding assets in the Soviet Union because they think political change could lead to your losing what you've you've gained. So they like to get it into the Western system, into the Western banking system, and in such a way that nobody will know where it came from because they think it will be safe then. So 
then also they might think, well, people, perhaps people would be ha happier trading with an Irish registered entity than with this uh, businessman from Moscow. You have reported that in some instances, limited partnerships are known to be used for a variety of illegal purposes. I mean, can you give us an example of some of the illegal activities that they are used for? It's kind of hard to get, you, to get your head around this. It's a bit like the scale of the information in, in this uh, leak. But there, there are these things called laundromats. A few years ago, they were very much uh, focused in the Baltic banking system where somebody somewhere would organise it that there'd be a whole network of bank accounts in the names of different limited partnerships. In this case, we're talking about UK limited partnerships. So this would be like, look like a spider's web. It'd just be, and it'd be impossible to follow the money from its origins to its destinations through this web because it'd be much too complicated. And you'd have lots of bank accounts in different partnerships' names in different banks and the money going back and forth. And people would then, the people who operated the system would then charge a commission to you. So you have, let's say, $3 million that you've gotten somewhere through some activity. Let's say you've had a cyber attack on the health service in Ireland and you were paid five million as, a, as a, a ransom or whatever. And then you put it into the system and it ends up in the British Virgin Islands, having gone through numerous bank accounts. And it's been washed, which is itself a, a, a crime, a money laundering crime. So that's an instance where these limited partnerships in the UK have been used to a huge extent to uh, launder money. They've also propped up in selling arms to sanctioned states, states that you shouldn't be selling arms to, and numerous frauds. There's a fraud currently being investigated by the FBI in America where uh, online advertisers were being defrauded by fake clicks on fake ads and the money was ending up in various bank accounts in Switzerland and Czech Republic and so on. These bank accounts were opened in the name of limited partnerships in the UK. Why do you think there are so many limited partnerships springing up in Ireland now? Well, certainly one possibility is that there were so many of them springing up in Scotland and then some of those limited partnerships that were in Scotland were being associated with money laundering and other serious types of crime. There were reforms introduced in, in Scotland. It may be the case that people decided that if they moved to Ireland, there, there'd be a lot less uh, scrutiny they wouldn't have the reputational questions that are now associated with Scottish limited partnerships because of the controversy that's happened over recent years. What does that say about Ireland's reputation internationally, that it's a place that perhaps feels safer for these companies and individuals to hide out, essentially? Well, certainly the, the marketing is that Ireland's got a top-class reputation and therefore it's advantageous to the controllers of these partnerships to have an Irish legal entity. Of course, the, the possibility is that down the line, some of these legal partnerships may become associated with criminal activities and controversy, which will then damage Ireland's international reputation in the same way as it happened in, in Scotland. The UK has started cracking down on some of these de facto offshore entities in England and Scotland in recent years through reforms. Does the same level of scrutiny exist here now in Ireland? I mean, what measures is the Irish government taking to update our own legislation in this area? Here in Ireland, we've been reviewing the, the Limited Partnership Act. The process began around 2019. The Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment is looking at yeah, draft a bill that would change the act. Interestingly, though, most of the submissions to the department as part of this process come from the uh, venture capital equity funding uh, sector. 
So that's where people are investing in, in, in business or investing in property. And the funds industry, again, which is a huge in, uh, industry or sector here in Ireland. And they find these limited partnerships to be really useful. So you could put you could put some of your money into a, an investment fund by way of these partnerships. And then if the thing the fund invested in went disastrously wrong, your investment will be limited. Your exposure will be limited to your investments. So they perform a, a legitimate function in, in, in the, the venture capital sector. So the venture capital sector has got a, a big interest in uh, how the limited partnership regime is reformed. So there perhaps isn't huge momentum to affect change or maybe the change that people might expect. Well, yeah, or they don't want to introduce changes that would have uh, negative consequences on areas of the economy that create employment and support industry. Coming up, who are the rich and powerful people whose financial affairs have been exposed through the Pandora Papers? Column, the people behind these offshore structures are clearly going to great lengths to conceal their identities. But now, with the Pandora Papers, we can see who some of these individuals are. And some of them are very well known. So who are they? Yeah, well, there's the, the Prime Minister of Czech Republic, Andrei Babis. He has spoken in the past about, you know, corruption or low standards and the need for transparency and so on. But he used an offshore shell company to buy a, a, a chateau in uh, the south of France, uh, cost $22 million. And he didn't disclose it as he should have, as was required by uh, politicians in the Czech Republic. And he think he's facing an election next week. So he's one of the names that's come out. King Abdullah in Jordan, during the period 2003 to 2017, he spent over $100 million on properties in the US and the UK. Jordan is uh, a country that receives foreign aid, you know, and um, he says it's his own money and that because he's such a high profile figure, he has to do these things in, in a way that maintains its privacy. But it is, I think, interesting, you know, where most of the citizens of the country are so poor to have the king going around on property spree like that. And that spending by King Abdullah becomes even more shocking when you think that 2013 to 2017, that was very shortly after the Arab Spring demonstrations, which of course erupted across the Middle East and, and saw protesters, including tens of thousands of Jordanians, fill the streets. So it's interesting to hear that Jordan's monarch was very soon after buying beachfront mansions in California. And had this, this extraordinary amount of expenditure going on and doing it in a way that people didn't know what was happening. Then you have the president of, of Kenya, Yuhuru Kenyatta, he and his mother and his family, it seems, have a foundation in Panama that owns assets approximately worth about $30 million, it seems. Do you have stories about President of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, spending again huge sums on property in the UK, including back in 2009, an office block for £33 million, which ended up in the ownership of his then 11-year-old son. And there's been lots of commentary over the years accusing the president of uh, corruption. We have a, a story in the Irish Times today about um, links between Uzbekistan and uh, some of the partnerships registered here in Ireland. Work that's been done by a 
professor up at the university in Ulster about the lack of transparency in some dealings in Uzbekistan that include Irish limited partnerships, roles that are, it's not clear why, what they're, why they form part of these uh, investment narratives and so on. So one of the overall pictures I would get out of it is a lot of the people who are the beneficial owners of these uh, companies, a lot of them seem to come from less rich countries, the companies and service providers and so on, banks that are associated with what's happening are very much first world entities. And what do the papers also reveal about financial secrecy in the United States? I mean, the US is a regular critic of offshore tax havens around the world. But what is going on in its own backyard? It seems that some US states have decided that, you know, there's money to be made in the provision of these types of services. So states like South Dakota and so on are amending their laws to make them more more amenable to businesses that are looking after the funds of wealthy people in such ways that the ownerships involved are are entirely opaque. So they're kind of bringing offshore practices that would normally be associated with the Caribbean and British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, such places like that, onshore into the US. So you can see a growing amount of this business happening in places like South Dakota, Florida and Delaware. It's important to mention, though, that moving money offshore isn't actually always illegal in most countries. And sometimes there's legitimate reasons that people do it. So why all the secrecy around all of this? Yeah, it's not illegal at all to open an offshore company. And of course, most of our multinationals here in Ireland have offshore companies. And that's the big controversy a few years ago about the non-payment of tax by people like Facebook and Apple and so on. That all involves offshore companies. And in fact, the financial services centre here in Dublin, and as I understand the Cayman Islands, there's unfathomable amounts of money sloshing back and forth between offshore islands and, and Dublin. Uh, all the time through the banking system. But there's a particular concern about people setting up limited companies in in offshore jurisdictions. They don't pay tax. The offshore jurisdictions go to great lengths to protect the secrecy of the beneficial owners. And uh, very often these companies are just shells, the sole purpose of which is to hold assets and uh, obscure who are the, the real owners of these assets. Column, as a journalist, you've played a role in a number of these large-scale international investigations over the past few years. But how does it actually feel personally for you, publishing stories about some of the most influential and richest people on earth, these people who are essentially buying secrecy? I mean, does it keep you awake at night in the lead up to publication? It's kind of exciting, to be honest, uh, you know, and uh, it's great to have access to all this information. And and I I particularly enjoy working alongside people from so many different cultures and so many different uh, continents. And so and there's lots of different languages being used and so on. And that's fun. And then when the stories get published, the deadline is a particular time, same time all over the globe. Mm -hmm. And then you can see if you monitor things like Twitter and so on, you can see the the same story trending all over the world. And and as the sun goes around the globe, the languages from the tweets changes, you know, because different different parts of the world, let's say South America is waking up and reading about it. Everything's in Spanish and so on. So it's just Mm -hmm. an interesting phenomenon to watch. Whether it makes any, you know, any difference is another question. 
Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, I mean, why do you think these cross-continental financial investigations have become important? And what do you think has been the outcome of not only Pandora, but Panama, other past investigations that have required collaboration between journalists in different parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the offshore world is, is driving. It certainly hasn't caused it to go into tailspin or anything like it. On the other hand, it can be very hard to, to monitor exactly what's going on everywhere. And um, the last time around, the Panama Papers had very significant consequences. For instance, in Pakistan, a lot of people got in trouble when their offshore secrets were revealed. So this, the effect is different in different countries and different places and perhaps in countries where people don't have the kind of rights and, and access to information and indeed media that you can trust that we have in Ireland. You know, these things can give hope. You, people might feel particularly powerless in parts, some parts of the world and it might give them some hope that the money stashed off by the ruling families in their, in their countries is, you know, it's been revealed that it's going on. In that sense, people are being held to account to a certain extent. Thanks, Colm, very much. That's all for today. You can read more from Colm Keena, the Irish Times legal affairs correspondent, on the Pandora Papers at irishtimes.com.